Hello and welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation. Over the past several weeks, we've been working our way through Jesus's letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And so last time we finished up Revelation 2, we've looked at a letter to a loveless church, the church at Ephesus, a letter to a suffering church, the church at Smyrna, a letter to an idolatrous church, the church at Pergamum, and a letter to an immoral church, the church at Thyatira. And today we will look at the fifth of the seven letters, a letter to a lifeless church, the church at Sardis. And just as a reminder, each of these letters ends with Jesus saying, let him who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And since we today, even in 21st century America, do have ears to hear, God is calling us as his people to hear the messages to these letters as well. They are not restricted to seven historical first century churches, but are relevant and applicable for all of the churches throughout all of history. Those of you who are older may remember a famous uh, 1971 Pogo cartoon that came out on Earth Day of that year. And as the two characters are, are walking uh, through nature and they see all the, the pollution and the garbage piling up, uh, and Pogo finishes that, that comic strip by saying, we have met the enemy and he is us. In other words, with all that was going on in the world at that time, the biggest threat to the planet uh, was really us as a human species. And it, it resonated with many in the environmental movement. And we see something similar at the beginning of Revelation 3, as Jesus writes a letter to the church at Sardis. So far, many of the churches that we've looked at have succumbed to outside pressure uh, from uh, the Jewish leaders or the Roman government, and there's been pressure put on uh, from the outside. But really what we see in Sardis is, is that the church itself was the problem. It wasn't so much any of the physical or spiritual enemies that they had, but the fact that they had simply ceased to do what they were meant to do. And so follow as long as I read Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. For I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and you have no idea what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels." Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. As I've said, unlike some of the other churches in Asia Minor, there is no hint that there was persecution of the church at Sardis. It would appear that this was one city where uh, the Roman government extended the same rights to the Christians as they did to the Jews, that they continued seeing the early church as a sect of Judaism. And so they did not require the church at Sardis to sacrifice to any of the idols or to the emperor. 
And so Christians in Sardis appear to have lived in peace. They were accepted and left alone to worship. They were allowed to participate in the economic life and the political life of the city without having to compromise their beliefs. And so the problem at Sardis wasn't so much that they had all this outside pressure of persecution or that uh, false teachers had infiltrated the church. Uh, Rather, the problem seems to be that the church at Sardis had been lulled into a false sense of security. And so it's to this church that Jesus pens this letter, this church that had lived in religious freedom. Like last week, we are going to, to look at two particular points today. And the first of those is that present obedience is a surer sign of life than past reputation. Present obedience is a surer sign of life than past reputation. In verse 1, Jesus tells the church at Sardis, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. The city of Sardis itself had once been a preeminent city in the area, but the ravages of time and a devastating earthquake had reduced the city's standing in the area. And Jesus seems, seems to be playing on this history of the city of Sardis to criticize the church at Sardis as well. By the first century, the city of Sardis was essentially living off their reputation. They were considered a great city in the area because of days long gone by, not because of anything in particular they had done recently. And the same was apparently true of the church at Sardis. They had a reputation for life. Uh, They had a reputation for being a living church, a growing church. But Jesus tells them that he knew from their works that they were dead. In verse 2, he says that he has not found their works complete before his God. Essentially, he's saying that their works were not in accordance with their reputation. That when compared with the reputation they had, their works were not complete. They were not what you would expect from a church with their reputation. And Jesus, of course, would know. As we've seen in each of these letters, the way that Jesus introduces himself helps us interpret what he is saying to the cities. And to the church at Sardis, Jesus refers to himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And these symbols carry over from Revelation chapter 1, and the seven spirits of God is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And the seven stars are a reference to the complete church, the universal Catholic church throughout all of space and time. And so Jesus is saying that he is the one who possesses the Holy Spirit. He is the one who possesses the entirety of the church. And so what he's really saying is that he is the one who is competent and capable of deciding who is part of the living church and who isn't. What churches are truly alive and what churches are dead? And he says that the works of the church at Sardis indicates that they were not alive, that they were dead even though their reputation was that they were living. Now, unfortunately, from our perspective, Jesus doesn't really tell us what those works were. 
I think our natural human inclination is that we want to know what works would mark us out as spiritually dead or spiritually alive so that we could avoid those that are characteristic of dead churches and do those that are characteristic of living churches. Now, that's not really the point that Jesus is getting at. He's not trying to give us a checklist of things to do and things to avoid. He also doesn't mean that some sins lead to death while others don't. Uh, of course, we have to let Scripture interpret Scripture, and we know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The wages of all sin is death, but the gift of God is the eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Rather, what I think Jesus is getting at here in, in one of the passages as I studied this, this passage and, and reflected on it and, and allowed God to work in my own heart and life, the passage that kept coming up was 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, where Paul tells Timothy, who again is pastor of the church at Ephesus at the time, so he's ministering in the area of Asia Minor. And Paul tells Timothy, know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And I think we're tempted at this point to think that Paul is speaking about unbelievers. He's warning the pastor of a church, hey, this is what the world is going to be like in the end times, and so things are going to be hard. But notice what Paul says next, that these people are holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, these are people who look godly, who have the appearance of religion. These are good, moral, church-going people. They have the form of godliness while denying its power. These are people who are living a religious, moral life just without the power that fuels the Christian life in the Holy Spirit. And so while they look very godly from the outside, they are holding to this form of godliness what is underneath the surface is that they are lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. These are all things that occur underneath the surface in the heart of a person. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is that these are people who are going to look very godly, but they do not have the power of a truly godly life. And so underneath are all of these things where they are loving themselves or money or pleasure rather than loving God. And so these are people who attend church. These are elders, perhaps, who are on the church's elder board because they're a white-collar worker with no obvious sin in their life. And yet, because they are lovers of money and lovers of self rather than lovers of God, they are stingy with the missions and the outreach budget, but very generous with the building fund because they want to build a bigger and better church building that will attract people. These are people who are boastful, proud, and demeaning, brutal people. So these are, are people who go to church and look very moral, but do nothing but judge those in need and cannot bring themselves to care 
for people who are trying to immigrate this country to give the, to this country to give their children a better life. Or instead of helping the poor, they criticize them uh, for being on welfare instead of trying to get a job. These are people who are conceited. These are people who, who lift themselves up rather than lifting the name of Jesus Christ up, even while being very moral within the church. These are irreconcilable people and slanderers, people who are constantly bad-mouthing other believers, constantly getting in disagreements that can never be reconciled to their brother or sister in the church. Maybe they even drive people out of the church rather than reconciling with them because that would mean humbling themselves. These are people who have the appearance, have the reputation of being alive, but are dead. And so Paul tells Timothy, avoid these people. And then he goes on to say to describe them further, for among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. And again, these are church people. These are people who are always learning. These are people who are reading the deep theology books, attending every adult Sunday school class offered. These are the people who volunteer to preach and to teach to show off how much they know. And yet they never really come to a knowledge of the truth. The truth never changes their life uh, because knowledge doesn't transform. Only a relationship with Christ transforms and they do not have that relationship. They are just always learning but never coming to a knowledge of truth. And these are the people that Jesus sees in the church at Sardis. They have a reputation for being alive. They have a reputation for being good church-going people. And yet really they're dead. There is no life to their Christianity because they don't know the truth. They don't have the power of the Holy Spirit at their disposal. And so Jesus tells these people, tells this church with this reputation for being alive while really being dead, remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And then in verse 4, you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. Ancient pagans never would have dreamed of entering the temple of their gods to worship in filthy clothes. Uh, they would have worn clean white or linen. And so in referring to the faithful of Sardis as those who have not defiled their clothes, Jesus indicates that there are some in Sardis who had not polluted themselves with pagan worship. And perhaps most of the church hadn't. Again, they have the reputation for being alive. So these are not people who are going off and compromising. And so Jesus had told them to remember what they had received and heard and to keep it. And these are people who had heard the gospel, who had heard the scriptures. And so Jesus is telling them to remember what they had heard and, and keep it. Because what seems to be going on is that free from the forge of persecution, the church at Sardis had become so lax that they started to reflect the world around them instead of changing the world around them. There was no conflict between the church and the world because the church lived in such freedom. And so little by little, the church at Sardis accommodated themselves to the world until there was very little difference between the two. G.K. Chesterton once said that we do not want, as the newspapers say, a church that will move with the world we want a church that will move the world. And unfortunately, the church at Sardis 
had become a church that moved with the world instead of a church that moved the world. And again, I do think that we in 21st century America, we who have ears to hear, are supposed to listen to what Jesus says to these churches. And so Jesus is speaking this message to us. And it should sound familiar because the church in America really has experienced unprecedented religious freedom for 200 plus years. We have not been in open conflict with the culture around us. And so we have allowed ourselves to fall under the delusion that the culture was becoming Christian when in actuality it was the church that was becoming worldly. And even the light conflict we did experience in the so-called culture wars was largely fabricated and focused on all of the wrong fronts, an indication of how worldly we had actually become. When the church in America does speak up, it's always in reaction to what the world is saying instead of being proactive in taking the gospel into all spheres of our existence. The economic prosperity that many Christians have experienced in America perhaps was not God's reward for our faithfulness, but maybe the result of us pursuing wealth rather than Christ. The political influence wielded by our leaders in the evangelical church perhaps was not God giving our country over us over to us for us to rule, but rather perhaps the result of us pursuing power rather than Christ. The rapid rise of materialism and sexual immorality within the church perhaps was not the liberal media corrupting our youth, but the result of generations of church growth strategies that train believers to pursue that which makes them happy rather than that which makes them holy. And so Jesus does say to the church in America as much as he does to the church in Sardis, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Repent. Change your mind. Change your direction. Stop what you're doing and turn back. Do not get lulled into a false sense of security and thinking that the world is becoming Christian when really it is the church that is becoming worldly. Of course, we see this in Romans 12 too, a very famous passage where Paul says, do not be conformed to this age. And again, that's the command. He's saying, don't be conformed. And that, that implies that our default is to be conformed. That left to ourselves, we will conform to this age. But rather, Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed, but be transformed. Repent, turn away from the world, and turn back towards Christ. Because it was this lack of repentance, as we've seen throughout these letters to the churches. Jesus is telling these churches to repent because it's the lack of repentance rather than the presence of of sin that leads Jesus to declare the church at Sardis to be spiritually dead. It was not that the church at Sardis was involved in all kinds of sexual immorality. It was not that they were worshiping idols. They were living very moral lives. And yet there was no repentance. There was no pursuit of Jesus Christ. And so it was their complete and utter willingness to approach God and worship in soiled garments to approach God in their best fleshly 
desires, their best fleshly methods, their best fleshly means, instead of approaching God in spirit and in truth. And of course, we see this throughout Scripture, God saying that it's not about what we're doing in worship so much as the heart that we are approaching Him with. And so we see in Hosea 6.6, where He says, I desire faithful love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And so He's saying, don't boast in the fact that you're doing all these different sacrifices when you don't know Me. I prefer that you know Me than that you mindlessly offer all of these sacrifices. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 through 18, he says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are all your sacrifices to me, asked the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons and Sabbaths and the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight, stop doing evil, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. Or Psalm 51.7, which says, The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. And so the church at Sardis had become very much like Israel had at various points throughout its history. They were still gathering for church on Sundays. They were still worshiping. They were still having midweek Bible study or prayer service. They were going through all of the motions. They were living very good religious, moral lives. But really, they were living unrepentant lives that were contrary to that worship. And so Jesus tells them to repent, not because repentance would earn them anything, but because repentance would be a sign of life. If there was any life left in them, they would respond to their Savior's call with repentance. And it would be this response to their Savior's call in the present that confirmed their response to his call in the past. What Jesus is saying is that our present relationship to him, our present response in the gospel is what confirms our response to the gospel in the past. If we said a prayer walked an aisle, raised our hand, whatever our response was to a gospel invitation. We said the sinner's prayer. But then from that point on, we never heed the Holy Spirit. We never repent. We never turn from our sin. We never move towards Christ. Then Jesus calls us to question. He calls us to examine ourselves to see whether we're alive or dead. Because a sign of life, a sign that God's Spirit is at work within us, 
is that when Jesus says repent, we repent. We turn from our dead works and turn back to life in the Spirit. We turn from our sin and turn back to the gospel. And yet repentance is not the only solution that Jesus gives. And so present obedience is a sure sign of life than past reputation, first of all. But second of all, future glory is a better goal for life than present comfort. Future glory is a better goal for life than present comfort. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die. If you are not alert, I will come like a thief, and, and you have no idea at what hour I will come upon you. Jesus is once again drawing on the history of the city of Sardis to convey a message about the church at Sardis. The city of Sardis had never been conquered by traditional warfare, but twice in their history, they had been conquered because they failed to keep watch for the enemy. In fact, one of those times was by Cyrus, and Cyrus's conquering of the city of Sardis because they weren't keeping watch for him was used as a moral lesson by ancient writers precisely for that reason. And so what Jesus is saying is that it doesn't matter how strong you think you are if you are not alert, if you are not intentional about strengthening your spiritual life, you will be conquered unawares. Of course, we see this elsewhere in Scripture. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Peter says, Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. What Peter is saying to his readers, what Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, is that there is no such thing as cruise control Christianity. We can't sleepwalk our way to Christlikeness. And so Jesus says to be alert, to keep watch, to be vigilant. Otherwise, we will be caught unawares when he comes. The implication seems to be that if we are drifting through the Christian life, living like the world and not repenting, never repenting, there's a good chance that we don't really know him. And so his return will not be one that we receive with joy, but with terror, because we will not be welcoming back our Savior. We will be welcoming our enemy. Alertness, on the other hand, is a sign that we do know him and are therefore awaiting his coming in obedience and repentance, so longing to be like him that we are both repenting of our sin today and looking forward to the day when he will return and make us as he is. But there's another way Jesus rouses us from our complacency, another reason we should be on alert, and that is for the reward that is set before us. Not only will we walk with him in white, which points to our fellowship with him and our eventual sinlessness, but in verse 5 he says, In the same way the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. The reason we walk in newness of life today is because of the completeness of life that awaits us one day. We see this as well in Hebrews chapter 12, where immediately following the great hall of faith chapter with all of the, the great heroes of the faith, the author of Hebrews then immediately says in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, 
Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews is saying is that the way we lay aside every hindrance, the way we lay aside the sin that so easily ensnares us, the way that we run with endurance the race that is set before us is by keeping our eyes on Jesus. And not only because Jesus is our source and perfecter of our faith, but then in the second half of verse 2, Jesus serves as our example. And so we look to him as our example for doing this. And the example is that for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus kept his eyes fixed on the prize, on the joy that waited for him. Which, by the way, is you and me. That joy is his brothers and sisters that he was going to bring along with him. And for that joy, Jesus was able to endure the cross and despise the shame. And so that's the same way that Jesus tells the Christians at Sardis and Christians today to endure in this life, to push through, to, to disentangle ourselves from sin through confession and repentance, to endure through trouble and trial is by fixing our eyes on the joy set before us of perfect sinlessness, fellowship with our Creator and our King. Paul says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 17 and 18, where he says, For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Of course, later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul goes on to detail all those things that he had suffered, all of the, the beatings and the shipwrecks and the the scourgings and the, all the persecution that he had, faced, he had faced and a burden of loving and praying for these churches that could never get it right. And it's all of that that he calls momentary light affliction. Not to trivialize all that, but rather because he was seeing that in light of what waited him. He didn't fix his eyes on what he could see, all of that affliction and persecution and tribulation, but rather he fixed his eyes on what he could not see, that absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. And so Jesus lays our reward out before us so that we might repent, not again, as we said last week, and be empty, but that we might repent and be filled. Because our world lulls, lulls us to sleep by convincing us to pursue our comfort. All you need to do is watch a half hour of TV and nearly every commercial will bombard you with the need to be comforted, with the need to live in comfort here and now. That that's all this world is about, that we need to be, our bellies to be full. We need to have all of our slight aches and pains medicated away. We need every possible inconvenience to be done away with. We need to be comfortable here and now. And our world so easily lulls us to sleep with that. And honestly, never more so than 
when we do enjoy the religious freedom that we do and have enjoyed in this country, when there is no uh, brutal opposition, no conflict between the church and the world, we get lulled into thinking that the world is Christian when it's not. And so Christ wakes us up from this slumber with promises of life. And of course, again, this is repeated throughout Scripture. Isaiah 26, 19 says, Your dead will live, their bodies will rise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for you will be covered with the morning dew, and the earth will bring out the departed spirits. The way that the prophet rouses his people from sleep is not with the threats of punishment, it's with the promises of reward. It's with promises that they will be covered with the morning dew, that the earth will bring out the departed spirits. It's the promise of resurrection that rouses us from our slumber. Similarly, later, Isaiah 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines over you. The people are woken up because their light had come, because the glory of God was shining on them, not because of threat of punishment. And again, Romans 13, 11, Paul says, Besides this, since you know the time, it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep, because now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And he doesn't threaten people with, hey, wake up, because Jesus is coming back and he's pissed with you. But rather he, he says, hey, wake up, your salvation is nearer. Christ is coming back for you. So don't sleepwalk through life, but live here and now in relationship with him, eagerly anticipating that day when that will be perfected. The way we so often interpret Revelation is that the return of the Lord means that we get to escape this life. And we kind of try to ignore all of the, the trials and troubles of this life, looking forward to the returns that we can escape. What we see repeatedly throughout Revelation, throughout indeed the New Testament and really all of Scripture, is that we look to the return of the Lord not so much in the hope of escaping this life, but rather to help us persevere in this life, to help us persevere through the trials and the tribulations, to help us persevere through the temptations and the sin, to help us persevere through the confession and repentance and the living in Christian community. Because one day, Jesus will come and completely remove our sin. And so until that day, we confess it and repent of it. One day he will come and wipe away every tear from our eye. But until that day, we pour out our tears before him. We don't pretend that there's nothing to cry about. One day there will truly be no conflict between us and the world. But until that day, we stand alert, watching for his coming and being strengthened that we might stand firm against the enemy. This is what it means to live the Christian life, not coasting not sleepwalking, not accommodating with the world, but vigilance, living in relationship with Christ now in anticipation of full relationship with him in the future. We look forward to the day when he will come back to help us persevere in the here and now. And so whatever accommodation looks like in your life, uh, whether that be uh, outright sin 
uh, living in, in immorality and accommodating to the church's uh, morality, in in accommodating to the world's morality instead of living according to the standards of Scripture, or whether that, that looks like setting the wrong priorities, living for comfort here and now instead of living for Christ-likeness, or whether that means uh, buying into the whole political and economic structure and looking to those things as our hope instead of to Christ for our hope. Jesus calls us today, here and now, to repent and turn back to him, to, return, to turn from our dead works and turn back to him and living by the Spirit. He is our reward. He is what we look forward to. We fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, so that just as he did for the joy set before us, we might endure the cross of affliction in our life, despise the shame, and one day sit down at the right hand of our Father. Thank you for joining us again today as we looked at Revelation 3, 1 through 6. Uh, next week we will look at the sixth of Christ's letters to the churches.